Well, someone once said, we are defined by what we do when we get knocked down. Uh, I don't know who said it. Maybe I just made it up. Probably not. It seems like a fairly common saying, but it's often true. What do you do when you get knocked down? Well, full transparency, move into uh, make fun of Samuel time, uh, telling a story from high school. I, I am not always gracious when I get knocked down. Uh, back in high school, I was dating a girl. It was my first really serious relationship. And so as with many of our first really serious relationships, they don't work out. And uh, pretty normal story so far, but here's what I did to cope with it. Here's what I did when I got knocked down. I, I had just a little bit of money from the paper out that I was doing. And so I went out to the store and for uh, several weeks, I spent a couple hundred dollars on Pokemon cards. Uh, one, if that, that might tell you something about myself, or that I'm uh, a little bit of a nerd. But, but also, uh, I, I, um, I don't handle heartbreak very well. And you might be, I already mentioned it was in high school. It was probably more of the actions of, of a junior higher, but... Uh, uh, and you laugh, but, but we, we all struggle at times with getting up gracefully. And so this morning, in all seriousness, we, we face times, moments, seasons, experiences of getting knocked down. But the question is, how will we get up? That will define who we are and who we are becoming. And the way we choose to get up in hard times can change the course of history. Ours, the people around us, and sometimes the world. And we're going to see that today with a few faithful followers of Jesus at the beginning of the church uh, in this place called Antioch. Well, we've been in the book of Acts the last uh, 10 weeks. We've been journeying with the earliest followers of Jesus. We've seen uh, persecutions the last couple of weeks, but, but it all comes back to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of Acts, the, the day of Pentecost, that God is giving his presence to be with his people, to bring power in the midst of faithfulness and persecution. And, and up until this point, if you really think about it, if you've been with us, it's been a very Jewish story. We've been interacting with mainly Jewish characters in Jewish regions and, and cities. But last week we encountered for, for one of the first times a significant event with this guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile or a non-Jewish person. That, that all changed. And, and we're kind of following up on that incident today. We, we saw a turning point. Peter, the apostle Peter, encountered this Gentile and realized that he too was welcome into the family of God. This was scandalous for a first century Jew and even for a first century Jewish Christian. And that's where we pick up today. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. He's reporting to the leaders of the church there. And this is what we see their reaction is when he tells them that, that, that the Gentiles are now welcome into the family of God. That the Holy Spirit, the second day of Pentecost for the Gentiles had happened. This is Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, the leaders, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to Gentiles. God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
And this is not only the, the, the pivot point for the, where we're going to spend the, the rest of Acts, but it, in many ways it's the beginning of the fulfillment of all of Scripture, the overarching story, the narrative of, of the Bible. Those of us who, who call ourselves Christians of Christ followers, we, we learn throughout Scripture that the very heartbeat of God, of Yahweh, is that all people would come to know him. That all people throughout all time, extending even to now, would would come to him regardless of race, ethnicity, life stage, socioeconomic status, gender. God wants everyone to know him, period, full stop. And that's the beauty of this story and the following stories as we continue in the book of Acts. Before we get to our story today, I do want to just give you some information about the city that we're going to primarily be spending our time with this morning. This is the city of Antioch. And as you can see, this is, this is a, a beautiful, wonderful map. And uh, Antioch is over here. We've got uh, uh, Jerusalem down here. That's what we're probably familiar with, Israel, Palestine, that, that area. Antioch is up here, the north, northeastern edge of the Mediterranean. And Antioch is very important in, in the ancient world for this reason. And it was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was founded uh, 300 B.C. before uh, Jesus. It was a major trade city. And so uh, it was responsible for goods that would come from Arabia, China, India, Babylonia, Persia. And all comes all, from all these places all the way through this, all the way up into Rome, up here. And so it was kind of the, the grand central station of the Roman Empire. I haven't lived in Champagne very long, uh, but, but uh, those I've talked to and just kind of gathering, it, it may be like Neil and University, right at the center of everything in the town, especially during the school year. But Antioch was, was third. You think of Rome, the Roman Empire, of course, Rome is a big deal. It was third in population and prosperity and influence in that time. At least half a million people lived there, and 70,000 of those were uh, Jewish people. So it was a very diverse place religiously, uh, socioeconomically, uh, ethnically. In, in, in any, any, any term of diversity you can think of, Antioch was this kind of place. So it, it was very, very important. It was a hub for trade, travel, religion, and influence. And in many ways, it was, was the heart of the Roman Empire. And this is the city this morning that we're going to spend some time on. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, so if you want to turn with me to, to uh, Acts 11, uh, we have a somewhat shorter passage. So I'm going to go ahead and just read it all straight through this morning. So I want you to pay attention to the flow of the story. Pay attention to, to what's happening, the things that stick out, the questions you have, the promptings that God may have for you this morning in his Word. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sister living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And so this morning as we come to this text, we pray that your spirit would be awakening in us, prompting the things that we need to be facing, the encouragements we need to hear, the challenges we need to hear. And so have your way in this moment. Speak and help us to be present to what you're saying. Pray these things in your name. Amen. And so in this text, we see, see some dudes that they were scattered by the persecution. They, they, they come away from Jerusalem and they're going into various places, Antioch being one of them, but um, a couple other places that we're going to talk about in a second as well. But they're causing such a ruckus. There's so many people coming to Jesus. The church in Jerusalem hears about it. And so they send uh, Barnabas out there to check it out. He gets there. He's like, I, I, this is amazing, but I can't handle this on my own. So he goes and grabs Saul, uh, the, someone we also know as Paul later on. And so they come back and they invest a lot of time with these people. And, and then a lot more people come uh, to the Lord. Then we see these, these prophets that come up and they're, they're predicting a famine. And these same people that have been uh, trained now by Barnabas and Saul are, are living generously, giving to churches elsewhere in need. This is the place where they were first known as Christians. And that's kind of the snapshot of this story. Pretty cool, right? Or is it? If you're kind of like me, it's kind of a standard story in the book of Acts. It's just more of the same. Yeah, it's really awesome. It's really encouraging to read. But we've read other things like it. And we'll read other things like that in the future for when, as we travel through Acts. But what is it that sets this story particular apart? Why is it here? What can we learn from it this morning as God's people? Well, I mentioned earlier, I was talking about Antioch, this, this ancient city, this hub city. It was really, really important that it was in many ways the, the heart of the Roman Empire. But what I haven't told you is that the church of Antioch, arguably even more so than Jerusalem, will become the heart of the early church in Acts. And it's actually one of the most influential churches in history. It's often associated with missionary work, specifically sending missionaries. It is the, the home base, as we're going to see in future chapters, of not just Paul's first missionary journey, but his second and his third. 
That even in, in the centuries to follow, that it's going to be the home for significant apostolic fathers, St. Ignatius, St. John Chrysostom. And ultimately, it became one of the five biggest hubs of Christianity in the first millennia of its spread, along with Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. So it's a big, big deal. We have a lot that we can learn from this, this city and these people in this city. But why does it matter that this church in particular is so influential? You may have heard the story of Balto, the dog, the sled dog, who, who, who uh, was one of the ones who helped in 1925 in, in the Nome Serum Run. There was a deadly outbreak of diphtheria in a remote part of Nome, Alaska. And it was threatening, uh, a deadly outbreak of diphtheria, like I said, but it was, it was threatening especially children. And there was an antitoxin that was located, but it was 674 miles away. And it was very difficult terrain, very hard to get in, in that time of year. It was an impossible distance almost. And so teams of sled dogs were put together to relay over the course of the distance. And, and it was Balto who, who was the, the finishing uh, sled dog to get there in Nome. And many of us have probably heard the name Balto, maybe even seen the, the, the cartoon or uh, those kinds of things. But here's the deal. He's not the hero of that story. There's actually another sled dog named Togo who is the hero, a 12-year-old dog. You see, Balto finished the last 50 miles of this 675-mile journey. But Togo, over the course of the entire thing, ran about 264 miles. So over a third of it was this, this dog named Togo. The average for all the sled teams was 31 miles. So, so Balto, with 50, was a little above average. But we have Togo, who is running miles and miles and in circles around these other dogs. But we don't know his name, unless you've seen the recent movie on Disney+. Plus. Why does the story about this dog connect to the church in Antioch? Because this church was started by a bunch of unsung heroes, ordinary people like Togo, like you, like me, specifically unknown men from Cyprus and Cyrene. In the epic of Acts, we see the work, the, the faithfulness of a missionary work from unnamed Christians. Yes, we see Saul. Yes, we see Barnabas. But we hear these stories of people who changed the course of history. And it has a lot to teach us because we're ordinary people too. And so we're going to learn from them this morning. And so I'm going to walk through over the next few minutes seven marks of a history-making church that we can learn from these people. You might be thinking seven takeaways. That's a lot. It is. And that's how significant this moment is and what we can learn from this church. And so as I go through these, I just pay attention to the promptings in your heart. The, the ones that might hit you a little harder, that might give you pause, pay attention to that. That may be the spirit this morning having you sit with that. And so the first mark of a history-making church is that they ask, what would you have us do now, Lord? What would you have us do now, Lord? 
Acts 11, verses 19 and 20, those who had been scattered by the persecution, they went and they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, spreading the word among only Jews. But some of them, our men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. We're going to throw the map up again. So again, I mentioned that Antioch is right here, and we see men from, from Cyprus, this island, so literally across the sea. But then Cyrene is over here in northern Africa. And the, 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 these people, these disciples who had spread out from Jerusalem, Phoenicia's over here, Cyprus is right here, Antioch's up there, Cyrene, they're, coming, they, they, they're, they're scattered. And then they are gathered and sent. Olivia is over preaching in Urbana today, and she said that, that the kinds of things that these people would have faced reminds her of some of the children that, that she works with in foster care. They're removed from everything they know, placed somewhere new, and, and that's hard. That's called trauma. That's suffering at times. And these people who were persecuted in Jerusalem left, and they were facing unimaginable hardship, traveling unimaginable distances for us on foot. They're asking, what would you have us do now, Lord? So they return to Antioch. And they don't just preach to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles there. So God works good even out of the worst situations. You can trust that his presence is with you in the midst of hard times. In fact, ministry oftentimes will be born out of suffering, hardship, pain, out of our stories, our experience of, of grief, sickness, loss, infertility, miscarriages, church splits, depression, anxiety, you name it. Whatever you are facing this morning, oftentimes we ask, why, God? And there's a place for that. But at some point, we make the turn, and we, the turn and we say, what would you have me do now, Lord? And that is the mark of a history-making church. If we are willing to make that turn to ask, what would you have me do now, Lord? We will change the course of history, ours and others around us. And maybe like Antioch, the course of the history of the world. The second mark of history-making church, they expect that God is always already present and at work. Always already present and at work. They expect to be surprised by God, and yet they trust him in the midst of uncharted territory. Acts 11, verses 21 through 24, I'll kind of skip through this. The Lord's hand was with them. Lots of people came to Jesus. News went to Jerusalem. Barnabas came. He shows up. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had already done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit faith. More people were added to their number. Barnabas shows up. He's like, wow, look at what everything God has already been doing. 
In Acts, grace that we see, this word grace in verse 23, it's the the power that flows from God or or the exalted Christ and it, it accompanies the activity of the apostles and the disciples giving success to their mission. God is always at work. His grace is always at work. We just have to have the eyes to see it. We need to be looking for it like Barnabas was. Have you ever had that moment where you see someone who's a little disheveled or, or maybe someone who's kind of in need and you think to yourself, that, oh, that person probably needs you know, some encouragement. Maybe I need to share Jesus with, with them today. And so you walk up to them and then you have the moment where they start sharing Jesus with you and you're humbled and you're, you realize God's not only at work in my life and he often shows up in unexpected ways and places. Just read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. When we expect that God is at work, we're one step closer to making history. And oftentimes it just starts with a simple act of paying attention, whether that's practicing gratitude or, or journaling about our days or just trying to have a, a consistent prayer life where you're looking you're, with your eyes and your ears and your hearts and your lives. You are looking for what God is already doing all around you because I guarantee you that he is at work, not just in your life, but in the lives of everyone around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends, your enemies. He's at work. Will you join him in seeing the way he sees, trusting that grace is working? That's the second mark. The third mark of a history-making church is that they honor and empower individuals in their unique area of giftedness and calling. There's a humility and a discernment to empower people in their skills and their passions into their their callings. Here's what Acts 11 verses 25 and 26 says. Barnabas then went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they spent with the church teaching great numbers of people. Barnabas shows up and is like, Oh my goodness, God is doing some crazy things. Amen, hallelujah, but I can't handle this on my own. I know this guy who's called to these people, who's called to the Gentiles. And so he goes all the way to Tarsus, which is 100 miles over land. So it's not a quick journey. He, he, he takes time and he invests through all the way to go. I need to go grab this guy and bring him back and we're going to do this work together. And so there's a humility from Barnabas. I can't do this alone. And I'm not necessarily gifted for some of these things. I, I know my, my giftings, but I also know Saul. So I'm going to go grab him and bring him back. Over the years, this church first has had a history of, of walking alongside people, of, of investing in people who, who eventually would be launched. Some of our own mission partners grew up here, like the Williams over in Kenya, the, the Barkers in, in Senegal, the, the, the Schraders here in town at the U of I. I'm incredibly grateful that whenever I was interviewing uh, to, to, to take this job that I'm in now here, that one of the biggest questions that the, 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 the first team had for me was, uh, what are your passions? What, not, not just what are your giftings, but what are your passions? Where are you called? Where is God working? See, for most of my, my life, I, I was known for uh, my singing. 
my worship leading in the church. The people are, oh man, Samuel's clearly called to be a worship leader and I am gifted and I love serving in that way, but my heart is for discipleship, for teaching, for walking alongside people. And when we are able to spend the time sitting with people, getting to know them and identifying giftings and callings so that we can then get them in the right spot, the place where they're going to flourish, not just inside the church, but outside the church, that is the kind of church that changes history. So what are your giftings? What is your calling? What is your vocare? Calling. Vocare is the Latin word for 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 voice, the calling of God in your life. What is your vocation? What is the direction your life is headed that God is calling you into? And how can you then align with God's kingdom purposes here at first and in the, the, the wider community and in the world? The fourth mark. History-making churches are willing to play the long game. They're willing to play the long game. We, we read in, in Acts uh, 11.26 that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church there, taught them great numbers of people. They spent a whole year. And there are other passages in Acts and other places in Scripture where it's, it's not just a year, it's, it's years or, or decades of time and investment, but they stayed a, a, whole, a whole year. We have a hard time sticking with anything for a year. I, I don't know how many of you made, you know, uh, uh, New Year's resolutions this year. You know, I, I don't think I did. I don't, if I did, I don't remember it. But, but we, don't, we, we have a hard time sticking with anything for, for a whole year. But Barnabas and Saul, they were faithful. They stayed. They taught. They invested. And, and so were the people. So was the church. They stayed. They were taught. They then invested. And most of the most incredible stories in Scripture, in the Bible, are told with the long view in mind. We're not called to be extraordinary, just faithful. Fruitfulness comes from faithfulness. And faithfulness is the long and slow work of love. That's what we're called to. So in what areas are, is God calling you to, to be patient, to be committed for longer periods of time? Growth comes with time. We are designed to grow, but we're not designed to grow into an adult overnight, physiologically. And so why would we expect that our growth in Christ to be that quick in the same way? We need to work at it, work at our salvation, as Paul says in one of his letters, with, with fear and trembling. We, we need to be willing to play the long game. The fifth mark of a history-making church is they evangelize and disciple. They spent, uh, Barnabas and Saul, they spent a whole year teaching and, and oftentimes the church, we talk about going out and telling your story and, and evangelizing, which is amazing, but, but, but they, they're spending these time with these, these new converts, many of them, and investing in a life of discipleship for a whole year. Discipleship and evangelism are, are, are distinct, but they are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin. Without one or the other, both will die, grow stagnant. So yes, who are you sharing your story with, the good news with evangelism, but who are you investing into? Who is investing into you? That is the, the sustaining force of the gospel is investing in a life of discipleship with Jesus Christ in a community of others. 
Which brings us to the sixth mark. History-making churches consider the needs of others first. This is a, kind of an obvious one. We've already hit this a bit in Acts, so we won't spend a ton of time here. But, but uh, in, in the passage, there's a prophet named Agabus in verses 28, 29. He shows up, he predicts a severe famine. And, and the, the immediate response is the disciples, as each were able, decided to provide help for others down in, in Judea, near Jerusalem, to provide help. Their initial thought was not how do we survive, but then instead how can we help? And this was significant because the church in Antioch was a very diverse, lots of Gentile people in the church, but, but the church in Judea was primarily Jewish, so this was cross-ethnic boundaries. These are, these are helping people who are very different, who are, are living a different kind of life, but they're willing to focus on that, to focus on the needs of others that are right in front of them. And of course, there are times we need to take care of ourselves. You know, the, the, the classic, you're on a plane, it's crashing, you're going to take the oxygen mask. You know, if it's crashing, I'm not going to worry about oxygen probably very often, but, um, but you're supposed to, you know, get the oxygen on yourself and then get like, yes, there's times for that. But if our default reaction is always first and foremost ourselves, then we're missing something. We're not living the, the self-sacrificial, others-oriented love of Jesus Christ. And so what are the needs in your life around you? All around you, right around you. Friends, coworkers, neighbors, I've said that. Those, what are the spheres you're already in and where are the needs and how can you meet them? And that brings us to where we close this morning. At all six of these marks that we've talked about so far lead to what we read in Acts 11, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The primary way that, that we in our culture identify ourselves, Christians, was originated in this place in the church of Antioch from our passage today. And it is all these things working together that led others to look at the way these people were living, the way these people were loving. And say, these are Christians, followers of Jesus. They belong to Christ. Christ being the, the Greek word for Messiah, for the king. These are the king's people. And this is where we land this morning with our final mark, the most important one that history making churches don't pursue history making. They pursue the history maker, King Jesus. The word Christ means Messiah, Savior, anointed one, King. And so we give our allegiance to that King like the church in Antioch. We pursue Jesus and Jesus alone. Ultimately, anyone can decide to pledge allegiance to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ. And that's the point. Countless unnamed individuals starting with men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Phoenicia. Ordinary disciples did just that, changed the course 
of history. Will we be like the church in Antioch? And if we are, we will be known for Jesus. There's a man. His name is Brian Hayes. I'm sure that probably none of you know him. He's an ordinary guy. Works for the state of Illinois in Springfield. He's bald. He walked with me in a season in high school. We went to what we call Thai Food Tuesday. Every Thai Food Tuesday. I love Thai food. We go to Thai Food Magic Kitchen in Springfield. I'd recommend it. But he just walked with me. And, And apart from my parents and pastors in my life and people who were just daily interactions, this was the first adult presence in my life who loved Jesus so much to invest in my life, to disciple me, to show me what that meant. And I don't even think that Brian even knew what he was doing. He probably doesn't even know the full impact that he had on my life, but he was one of the first to not get paid and not to be, and you have to be in a family, you have to walk people, to, to, to choose to walk with me, to invest in me. An ordinary guy. And you don't know Brian. He's not a Paul or a Barnabas, not an Ignatius or or any of the church fathers. He probably never will be, but he changed the course of my life. The church of Antioch was started by a bunch of Brian Hazes, by a bunch of ordinary people like you and like me who chose faithfulness to Jesus. They weren't running after the things of the world. They weren't running after uh, honor or image or or power or glory. They were running after Jesus. And so this morning, I I wonder if we could be a church full of Brian's, a church full of ordinary people being faithful with the path laid in front of us, walking obediently on that path. It's the ordinary moments of our life that define us. And I believe that we are also, can also be a history-making church, faithful followers of Jesus walking everyday life. And we may not be remembered in sermons or books, but if we choose to walk with Jesus, there's no telling the impact we will have, not just on the generations now, but in the centuries and generations to come. May it be so, Lord. May it be so.